Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we discuss an influential work of New Testament scholarship. I'm joined today by Jeremiah Coogan. Hey, Ian. Dr. Jeremiah Coogan of the University of Oxford. He's a postdoctoral fellow working on gospel literature. Today we're discussing Evangelion, Orality, Textuality, and the Christian Truth in Irenaeus' Against Heresies by Annette Yoshiko Reed. Professor Reed is at New York University, and this was published in Vigili Christiani in 2002. In this article, Professor Reed argues that the second century figure Irenaeus of Leon combined two existing uses of the word gospel to do some new creative work. She argues that Irenaeus brought together one sense of the word gospel, or euangelion, that we see already in Paul in the New Testament, where gospel refers to the proclamation about Jesus, and then that Irenaeus combined this sense of the word gospel with another notion of gospel as a specific text, a narrative about Jesus. So we've discussed Irenaeus in this podcast before. He wrote in the 170s, and he is particularly notable for his defense of the fourfold gospel. We will get to that in a second. Let's start with Paul, though. Paul, in a number of his writings, refers to a gospel that is preached. And so, for example, in Galatians 1.11, we read, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that I preached is not of human origin. Likewise, in Romans 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, The gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God, with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So he gives the content of his gospel as being this message about how Jesus, descended from David, was the Son of God, who was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. This gospel that Paul preaches is not a book. This is an announcement. Uh, We see this word used in pre-Christian literature to refer to just announcements of good news, that a general won a victory or something like that. And that sense of the word is being used by Paul to refer to Christians' proclamation that Jesus has rose from the dead. Here it might also be helpful to note that this word good news or euangelion does appear in the Jewish scriptures as well, where also it isn't a book. It's proclamation about good news of things that God is doing. The same usage shows up in the Gospels. In Mark 1, verse 14, Jesus goes around proclaiming the Gospel. Now, he's not, of course, distributing literature here. He is sharing some good news about the kingdom of God. At the same time, though, we see a different sort of usage already in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 1, 1 reads, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and at least in some manuscripts, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, there is a convention in ancient literature where sometimes works are referred to by their first line. Uh, We call this the incipit, where the first line of the work becomes functionally the title. And it is true that eventually the Gospel of Mark came to be understood this way, that this reference to the Gospel in the first line of the Gospel of Mark came to be understood as its title. The question is, how early did that happen? At what point did people look at this and start reading the Gospel of Jesus Christ and see that as a type of book, or even the title of this particular book. Certainly it's the case that already Matthew reads the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and in his own gospel, chooses to begin by replacing the word gospel, euangelion, with the word book, biblos. So Matthew 1.1 reads the book of the genealogy, or the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. 
So Matthew understands what he's doing as a book, absolutely, but he doesn't just repeat Mark's use of the word gospel. And so at least doesn't want to use it as an incipit of his own work. Yeah, that's exactly right. Matthew doesn't seem to see Biblos and Evangelion as being quite the same thing. He would prefer to be writing a Biblos rather than something that might be called a Evangelion. Now, the next incredibly important datum in this conversation is Marcin of Sinope. And we've done an episode on Marcin, you can go back and listen to, I recorded with Ben, on Adolf von Harnack's important book on Marcin. Uh, but Marcin, according to his opponents, which are our only sources for talking about Marcion, read Paul's references in Galatians to refer to a book, and cited this, at least, as justification for believing there should be only one gospel. And Marcion had his own gospel and seems to have referred to it as a gospel, which he identified with Paul's usage. And so Marcion is one important data point where gospel clearly refers to a text sometime in the 140s. As Reed points out in her article, for Marcion, it seems that Christian truth is at least in part about identifying accurate and authoritative apostolic texts. It's not simply that Marcion identifies the word gospel with a text named gospel, but also that for, for Marcion, the locus of Christian authority has shifted. No longer is the gospel about a message that is proclaimed. Rather, it's about a particular text for Marcion or for perhaps others, a particular group of texts, which are the locus of apostolic authority. Right. Marcion's decision to identify Paul's gospel with a particular book does work, argumentative, epistemic work for him in controversies with other forms of Christianity. Another figure to whom Reed devotes some attention, but who we'll not talk about terribly much in today's podcast, is the figure Justin Martyr, who lived in Rome in the mid-2nd century. Now, Justin doesn't talk about Gospels a whole lot. Instead, he prefers to talk about the memoirs of the Apostles, although he does mention Gospels at least a couple of times. Right. Actually, I think it's really important that he says Gospels are not his preferred terms for these books, but acknowledges that other people conventionally call these books Gospels. They are for him memoirs, and just as an aside here, Justin definitely knows both Gospel singular and Gospels plural as books. This brings us now to Irenaeus, who also has connections to Rome, like Marcion and Justin, but who is writing from southern France. Now, Irenaeus defends the fourfold gospel. The most famous passage, Irenaeus is against heresies 3.11.8, and I'll read just a bit of the text. It's not possible that gospels can be either more or fewer in number than they are, for since there are four zones of the world in which we live and four principal winds, Skipping a bit. Uh, for the cherubim, too, were four-faced, and their faces were images of the dispensation of the Son of God. And skipping a bit more. For this reason, were four principal covenants given to the human race. So this is a hugely important passage where Irenaeus says there are four and only four Gospels. This is often the end point or starting point, depending on which direction you're working, of canon formation. Here we see that Irenaeus has settled on the four Gospels that are received in all the New Testaments used today. And Irenaeus' way of encapsulating this fourfold nature of the gospel is incredibly influential. We see, for example, throughout medieval art and architecture, lots of use of Irenaeus' appeal to the four cherubim, or the four creatures from the book of Revelation. The central point here is that for Irenaeus, gospels here refers specifically to texts. And elsewhere in Against Heresies, Irenaeus talks 
at some length about the particular text that he means by the four Gospels. He is referring to the Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, there's an enormously influential history of the formation of the Christian Bible written by Hans von Kampenhausen in 1950, where he sees Marcion as inventing this textual use of gospel, and Irenaeus being the place where this sort of enters into proto-Orthodox discourse, where Irenaeus marks the shift away from orality and appeals to tradition and ad hoc collections of written works to a fourfold New Testament canon, canonical list of gospels. And this... Kampenhausen understands as a response to Marcion and taking on some of Marcion's innovations, like his use of the term gospel as referring to a textual object. Now, Reed will follow Kampenhausen and others in seeing Marcion as the first to use gospel as a, we might say, bibliographic term to describe a particular named text as opposed to a proclamation of the message about Jesus. Reed differs, however, about whether, in fact, Irenaeus is the transition when Christians who we might call proto-Orthodox adopt the idea of the gospel as text, and also on whether this is a decisive turning point away from tradition and toward textual authority. Right. Irenaeus' critiques of the Gnostics, Gnostic appeals to seeker traditions, are sometimes cited as his rejection of appeals to oral tradition or the importance of the oral teaching of the church. But... In fact, if you read Irenaeus, Irenaeus doesn't object to oral traditions. Irenaeus doesn't object to succession of the apostles. Irenaeus objects to the particular Gnostic doctrines that are being justified using this argumentative strategy. Irenaeus himself asks the question, what would happen if the Gospels didn't survive? Well, he says no problem, because we have the apostolic succession. We have the teachings handed down to us orally. He has no problem. There is no dichotomy in Irenaeus' mind between the gospel that is given to him orally and the gospel that is textual for him. So this is going to be one place where Reed differs from Kampenhausen in seeing Irenaeus as the place where Christians shifted away from tradition, away from morality, and to texts. Reed is going to say, no, Irenaeus still uses both. Reed offers a rereading of the evidence from throughout Irenaeus's against heresies. As she notes, some scholars have previously discussed just one or two passages. For example, the great passage about the four faces and the four winds from against heresies 311.8, or Irenaeus's discussion of the particular circumstances of the writing of the four gospels that become canonical in against heresies 3.1.1. Instead, however, Reed tries to survey the entire text of the Against Heresies. Here, parenthetically, we might note that Irenaeus actually wrote another work as well called The Demonstration of Apostolic Preaching. That isn't covered in the article, but Against Heresies is quite long enough, and so <laughs> there's plenty to work with here. Right. Reed discusses some hundred-plus uses of the word gospel throughout Irenaeus's work and discusses whether these are the Pauline use or what she calls the Marcionite use, that is the, the textual use, the use to refer to specific books. Now, the article itself is organized around different grammatical functions that the word euangelion, the word gospel, takes. We won't follow that organization today. We'll just pull out a couple of examples. Right. Her argument is that, contrary to at least the implications of Kampenhausen's argument, Irenaeus uses gospel in both the Pauline and the quote-unquote Marcionite sense, uses it both as proclamation and as text. But 
more than that, as we'll see in a second, combines them in an interesting and torquely important way. We'll look at a couple of specific examples for both the Pauline use and for what Reed calls the Marcionite use. But it's also worth noting that there are a lot of cases where the sense is muddier than that. It's, there are a lot of cases in which the exact sense, whether textual or proclamation, oral teaching, isn't entirely clear. And that's what we might expect, because after all, Irenaeus is not primarily trying to answer our questions. Right. Nonetheless... Reed does pull out enough specific examples of each to show that there has not been a decisive transition from a Pauline to a Marcionite usage. So in the preface to his book three, Irenaeus says that Jesus gave the authority of the gospel to his apostles so they could preach with perfect knowledge. That's a really good example of gospel as the message that is proclaimed, specifically the message about Jesus, rather than a reference to any particular text. Or again, in Against Heresies 3.14, Irenaeus mentions, referring back to Acts, that Paul announces the gospel. Here again, gospel is about proclamation, not about a particular text. And then, of course, we have several very clear-cut cases where Irenaeus is using gospel in the bibliographic sense. So in 2.22, he says, um, his opponents have not examined the gospels to ascertain how often after his baptism, Jesus went up at the time of the Passover to Jerusalem in accordance with what was the practice of Jews from every land. So he's referring to particular actions of Jesus that they haven't examined the gospels to discover. Clearly here, gospels is a set of texts that record the activities of Jesus. And here it's worth emphasizing that Gospels here is plural. It's not just that there is a Gospel, as Marcion would have maintained, but in fact, Irenaeus sees multiple Gospel texts as being authoritative sources of information about Jesus and refers to them with the word Gospel. Also, Irenaeus uses the word Gospel to introduce quotations of the Johannine Prologue, where this is a this is clearly a text, this is the author's introduction to a text, and he uses the word Gospel to describe this quotation. Here what we have quite clearly are examples of both gospel meaning proclamation, teaching or preaching about Jesus, and gospel meaning a text about Jesus. But that's not the central and creative move that Reed makes. Rather, she suggests that the two senses work together for Irenaeus and enable him to do some new and creative theological work. One great example of this is in book three, Irenaeus describes people who don't recognize all the Gospels or who add in other Gospels and says, These people destroy the form of the Gospel, and in doing so are vain, unlearned, and also audacious. Those people, he says, who represent the aspects of the Gospel as being either more in number or fewer in number than his own fourfold Gospel. That is, to reject any of the four Gospels or to accept more than the four Gospels is to destroy the gospel. And so here, quite clearly, there's a relationship between the gospel as proclaimed message and the textual form that the gospel, and indeed the gospels, take. She says, even as Irenaeus describes the origin of these four authoritative gospels, he retains the earlier emphasis on the gospel as the oral preaching of the apostles, legitimizing these texts, that is, the four gospels, through appeals to apostolic authority that remain couched in the traditional rhetoric of orality. 
So we're saying there's two different moves Irenaeus is making by sort of combining the Pauline and the Marcionite use of gospel. The first is that the Pauline use of the gospel, the normative force of that is used to legitimize the fourfold gospel. These four gospels are the only ones that hand down the Pauline gospel. As, as a result of this, the word evangelion doesn't just refer to gospel preaching or to particular gospel texts, but also comes to refer to a third thing, the written gospel tradition as a whole. Irenaeus is appealing to this double sense of the word gospel in order to create a single gospel corpus, in order to articulate how the received collection of gospels, as he understands it, works for the church. To pull another quotation, she says, Consequently, we can infer that euangelion, gospel, here refers neither to a single gospel nor to the entire Christian truth in all of its manifestations. Rather, it denotes the written gospel tradition as a whole. The written gospel tradition. So the third thing that Reed says that Irenaeus posits is this gospel as a way of referring to the gospel tradition, or we might say gospel literature. There is not only Hamlet and the human person of Shakespeare, there is also Shakespeare, the body of work. And I think that's similar, that's analogous to what's going on here. We have gospel as a way to refer to the gospel tradition, which consists only of the four written gospels on the one hand, and encapsulates the oral Pauline gospel, the proclamation of the whole truth on the other hand. And this category lets Irenaeus do some important work. It helps him think about what properly belongs in that category of gospel literature, and the appeal to a single proclaimed gospel then lets him exclude from the category of really being gospel things that, on Irenaeus's terms, don't belong. Things like the gospel of truth, which he can reject because he says, well, in fact, it's not a true gospel. The Valentinian gospel of truth, therefore, doesn't belong in the corpus of real gospel literature. Reed thus sees Irenaeus's engagement with this dynamic as tapping into a broader second century concern with the relationship between unity and multiplicity. How can there be one unified gospel if the Christian church, at least Irenaeus's corner of it, uses multiple different written gospels? And this concern with the relationship between one gospel and multiple gospels is a persistent dynamic in how Christians for the next century and more, will continue thinking about the sort of gospel collection that they have. There's lots of good things in this article, but my absolute favorite thing is footnote number 63, in which she observes that the kata formula, the according to formula, is something that Irenaeus and indeed others reserve for the four canonical gospels. So those are the four gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Other Gospels, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Truth, both in Irenaeus, and then of course other Gospels we see in wider literature, are Gospels of. And this, Reed suggests, and I wish she'd made a lot more of this because I think it's a brilliant point, is precisely evoking this third thing, this concept that there is a true Gospel literature. There is a body of Gospel literature, and the Orthodox believe that the four canonical Gospels are all versions of that according to someone, whereas other Gospels, heretical Gospels like the Gospel of Truth, are not participating in that third thing. They are the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Truth. They are the Gospel of the Hebrews. They are the Gospel of the Egyptians. They are not biographical instances of this one Gospel as corpus reflecting the true Gospel as 
Pauline usage, the preached gospel, they are different texts that do not share, according to Irenaeus, in the whole truth. The category of gospel literature helps us understand what's going on in that passage that Ian and I read earlier from book three of Irenaeus's Against Heresies. Irenaeus refers to four winds and the four corners of the world and the four-faced creatures of the visions of Ezekiel or John the Seer in the book of Revelation. And Irenaeus is using these as a way to help conceptualize how it might be that four individual and different texts can all reflect one unified gospel corpus, one coherent gospel corpus. It's that third category, the idea of gospel literature as a coherent entity, something conceptually distinct from either particular named gospel texts, and yet also conceptually distinct from the idea of apostolic preaching full stop. It's that third category that makes this way of thinking possible. Not only, Irenaeus suggests, do the Gospels reflect one divine truth, but they somehow, in their difference and their pluriform nature, reflect that in a distinctive way that's worth paying attention to. Thus, Gospel literature becomes a category for analysis. So, quick overview before we move on to reception. Reed says that, first of all, Irenaeus doesn't have an issue with oral tradition. Uh, he just has an issue with Gnostics appealing to oral tradition. And that gospel is used in both the Pauline and the bibliographic sense in Irenaeus's corpus. And moreover, gospel, by combining these two things, or sort of creating a third thing out of these two things, gospel is also used to refer to the kind of literature, the body of literature, that is composed of the four individuals and reflects the truth, but is itself a sort of third entity. As Reed summarizes, Irenaeus conceives of Christian truth as multifaceted in its manifestations. But, as she argues, Irenaeus also aims to stress, above all, the singularity of the essence and origin of these four Gospels. Awesome. So this article is widely praised. This is a phenomenal article. It is informing both my work and Jeremiah's work. Absolutely. But we do have a few things we want to take issue with or expand upon. And I'll go first. I don't follow her analysis of the in the gospel phrase in particular. So again, she divides all the uses of gospel in Irenaeus' Against Heresy according to their grammatical structure. And when she looks at the phrase in the gospel, she argues that in each of these cases, except for this one last class where it explicitly refers to the Gospel of John, in each of these cases, it's plausible to read gospel here as a reference to the Pauline sense. In one example, Irenaeus contrasts what's in the law to what is in the gospel. And she says, well, yes, law, of course, is explicitly textual, but look, the same contrast appears in Ignatius, Second Clement, and the Didache, where a written text is juxtaposed with in the gospel. But this kind of begs the question, or she's at least assuming that Marcion is first, and so these can't be textual references. But I think there is very good reason to think Ignatius, Second Clement, and the Didache are using the phrase in the gospel to refer to books. Ignatius is the most obvious of these. I can, without endorsing all of Charles Hill's book, point out that he observes a pattern where Ignatius repeatedly refers to things in the law, in the prophets, and in the gospel in that sequence. These all three are written things used together. Strongly implies that Ignatius thinks about the gospel as a written text. And Ignatius, of course, in a very famous passage, also refers to people reading things in the gospel. 
Second Clement likewise reflects Mathean redaction of Mark. That is, Second Clement definitely knows a textualized form of this that is derived from Matthew's gospel. And the same goes for the Didache. This leaves open the question of whether the gospel referred to in these sorts of phrases has any other name. What this might be revealing is that the gospel isn't attached to a name according to Matthew, according to Mark, or at least isn't circulating for or being used with that sort of naming convention. But that's a different question than whether the gospel, as these figures describe it, is a text available. And here I think that one of the dangers is to muddy the distinction between gospel as itself being a title and then gospel as just being a category of texts. Agreed. And this nicely transitions us to Kelhoffer's article, um, How Soon the Gospel, where he argues that the Didachist and Second Clement and Marcion all are reflecting a common usage of gospel as a way of referring to a book. So Marcion reading Galatians isn't inventing this usage of gospel as book, deriving that from Galatians, but rather knows this conventional use of gospel as referring to a book and reads that into Paul's comment in Galatians and then uses that to justify his procedure with the gospel according to Luke. This again leaves open when exactly the titles according to came into common use. But the idea of gospel itself as a name for a text being Marcion's invention seems, I think, to both me and Ian unfounded. Absolutely. Even Justin's usage, saying that the memoirs of the apostles are commonly called gospels, suggests, first of all, this isn't just a response to Marcion, because he's saying Matthew, Luke, and Mark are also called gospels, and it's hard to imagine him making that sort of concession if Marcion was the only person using the word gospel in this way. Justin doesn't like Marcion. Here it's also worth noting that Marcion isn't the first one to identify a textualized gospel as a source of authority for knowledge about Jesus. This is already what we see in Ignatius, who is appealing in controversy with his opponents to the gospel as a source of alternate authority to other written sources of authority. We can also bring up the work of Chris Keith here, who has observed that already within the New Testament canon, gospels are understood as books. Matthew understands himself as writing a book of the beginnings. Luke has this explicitly textual prologue. Thomas is explicitly a writing. The Gospel of John considers itself one among other writings about Jesus. Gospels are texts as far back as we can go, up until perhaps Mark. But even Mark has a reader. Let the reader understand. For sure. This caveat, though, doesn't unsettle Reed's overarching argument. Choosing to identify the idea of gospel as text with someone other than Marcion doesn't change the fact that we still have two interlocking notions of gospel. Gospel as proclamation on the one hand, and gospel as text on the other. Completely agreed. Taking issue with Reed's analysis of one particular category, the in the gospel phrases, and the assumption that Marcion is where this textual bibliographic use of gospel originated, doesn't in any way undermine her actual substantive intervention, which is that Irenaeus is creating this third category by blending these two together. So no, I don't understand myself at all to be objecting to Reed's primary contention. I would also add that in addition to the argument that Reed makes, which I think is persuasive, she's also just collected a fantastically valuable body of sources. And those who are interested in gospel writing and gospel reception in the second century will find that 
collecting together all of the evidence for Irenaeus on gospel, as Reed does, gives a good starting point for thinking about other sorts of gospel writing from the Valentinian Gospel of Truth to Marcion to the reception of the gospels that become canonical. Totally agree. So we think this article is super helpful for understanding the formation of Christian canonical consciousness, how Christians came to understand and think about gospel literature. This article is very important for understanding the enduring significance in the Christian imaginary of apostolic succession, oral tradition, things like that. In this article, Reed anticipates a number of conversations that have become increasingly important over the last almost 20 years since the article was written. Particularly, her attention to the ways that early Christians are thinking and talking about the collection of gospel literature that they use and the circumstances of composition that they imagine for the gospels. These ways of thinking, these bibliographic ways of thinking, we might say, about gospel writing have become increasingly important in more recent conversations about the gospels in the second century and about the long formation of what we now think of as the New Testament canon. Thank you so much, Jeremiah, for uh, recording this episode with me. Always fun to discuss gospel stuff with you. Always. Always.